Voyages of Pim Better Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Hope everybody's doing okay out there. Uh, I saw that I have some new listens from Myanmar, Toronto, and Vancouver. So, hi to you guys. Thank you for listening and thanks for the support. Today I have Graham Holiday on the podcast. Super excited about this one. I've been talking about this for a while now. I think I first messaged Graham back in November. He is the author of Eating Vietnam, which I've referenced a few times on here, and his next book comes out in the States here on March 15th, and that is called Eating Korea. So we get into to both of those books in our conversation. Um, I also recommend that you check out Graham's blog at Noodle Pie. He's got a lot of cool photos from the places that he's been He's also lived in uh, France, the UK, Rwanda, Senegal, and he's got some, they're kind of like minimalist photos, but they, they do a really good job of capturing mood and just his writing in general, he just, he, he writes with a, a certain coolness that I admire. And if you're interested in writing in general, <clears throat> he talks a lot about the process of writing and he has some tips in terms of uh, the methods and how to write, and, and some, some computer programs that will assist you in organizing your writing. When I first started to plan out the podcast in my mind, I had uh, a whole bunch of goals. I don't want to call it a bucket list, because I think that's kind of like ticking down towards your death, but these are more some more realistic goals and, and some kind of fantasy, fantasy goals in terms of what I wanted to do with the podcast and who I wanted to have on. So for example, one of the more simplistic goals was to talk about uh, the Muay Thai class in Chiang Mai. And so that became the first episode. Uh, the, the pinnacle of my goals essentially would be being able to have a conversation with Anthony Bourdain and, and having him on the podcast. Uh, but early on when I was thinking about writers and travelers that I wanted to interview on here or have a conversation with on here, Graham Holiday was one of the first people to come to mind. So it was really cool that he, you know, gave me the time to, to do this and to have what I think is a really cool conversation for you guys to listen to. Something a little different that I'm going to do this time is I'm going to give away two copies of Eating Vietnam, and once Eating Korea comes out, um, I'm going to give away a copy of that as well. So the way that you can potentially earn a copy is I'm asking you to share this episode via social media. So either a Facebook post with a link to the episode, or if you want to tweet it out, take a screenshot of you sharing the episode and email me that screenshot. So my email is thevoyagesoftimvetter at gmail.com. So again, screenshot it, send me that screenshot. If I get a whole bunch, what I'll end up doing is putting everyone's name into a hat. Uh, I guess that's you know the most democratic way that I could do this. And then I'll randomly draw two and uh, you'll be the winner and I will send you eating Vietnam. 
And then, like I said, once Eden Korea comes out, uh, I'll send out a copy of that as well. So that's it for my intro. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If I sounded a little groggy, it's because right now uh, Graham is in Senegal and he can only do morning. So they're five hours ahead of where we are in New York here. So I got up at 3.30 a.m. to do this. So uh, I think it sounds okay, though. Hope you enjoy it. Catch you next time. Today, I'm lucky enough to have Graham Holiday joining us on the podcast. So, Graham, how you doing? Um, I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for getting in touch, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So, No problem. Your first book, Eating Vietnam, came out just a couple of months before I went to Vietnam for the first time. And mm-hmm. I went the last two summers... And I use that book as a bit of a culinary guide. Um, it was the first, or the only thing that I could find that kind of comprehensively gave you a guide down to the street or the particular person that is uh, selling that particular meal. So, mm-hmm. first, I want to thank you for putting that together. But no, no worries. My pleasure. So, Graham, it's in that book, but could you, to kind of set the background for this, could you briefly explain why you were in Vietnam and then why and how you transitioned to Korea? Okay. Um, Well, how I went to Vietnam was, well, I was living in England in the early 90s. There was a recession, not many jobs around. Um, I just graduated from college and... The future looked pretty bleak, and I was pretty desperate to get out of the small town I grew up in. So uh, it took me some time to work out how best to do that. But uh, the way I decided to do it was to train to be a teacher, uh, which was very common back then and, and still is now, uh, to, to live and work uh, overseas. I didn't want to just travel. I wanted to go and live in um, very foreign places. Um, so that's what I did. I trained to be a teacher. Uh, I managed to get a job in career fairly quickly Um, but what I really wanted to do was to go to Vietnam I'd been offered a job in Vietnam actually but the pay was so low and uh, I'd already accepted the job in Korea so I I um, was very happy to go to Korea Um, and then I still had Vietnam in my mind and after a year in Korea I managed to get a job in Hanoi and um, then I, I moved I moved to Hanoi in was that mid nineties? Um, and uh, yeah, I lived there. For, in the end, I ended up living there for on and off for for ten years almost. So that's that's how I ended up ended up in Vietnam. Is it true also that through your blog you became a fixer for one of Anthony Bourdain's episodes when he was doing No Reservations? Um, not a fixer, no. Um, let me try and remember, because I've been blogging about um, street food in Vietnam for quite a number of years, and at some point, Anthony emailed me 
to say, I can't remember the details now, but I think he emailed me to say he'd, he'd come across the blog and he realized I'd left Vietnam, I think, by that time. But they'd used it for a program that he did um, some years ago, I believe. I watched it, actually, and I, I saw, I recognized, I don't know, three or four or five different places. And uh, I knew exactly where he was because uh, I'd, I'd blogged about him. And he told me, you know, he, he basically used it as a guide for for a show years ago and so after that yeah we kept in touch um so that's getting on for over over 10 years i guess now that's really cool um and your blog is at noodlepie.com correct yes it is i mean i don't blog much there now but you know a long time ago when i lived in vietnam i was blogging about street food nearly every day because that's that's what i was doing i was going out to eat on the streets and digital photography was you know just kind of easily accessible for everybody even on phones back then 10 years ago or more um so yeah it was just it was like a hobby you know uh, it was my hobby in vietnam awesome so all of southeast asia has you know fantastic food and fantastic food cultures but i think that vietnam has a lot of unique characteristics um from what you talked about the the low plastic stool and plastic table to you know grandma's waking up at the crack of dawn to to cook food and sell food when you then transition to korea which obviously isn't southeast asia what distinctive characteristics would you say define korean food culture um very I suppose in some ways that they're similar in in the fact that food is kind of everywhere. It's accessible. It, it, I mean, it's relatively affordable. Um, people in Korea, as in Vietnam, are very much uh, an eating out culture. You know, there's not a, not a huge amount of cooking at home. I mean, people do cook at home, but because it, it's so easy and, and cheap and, and the variety is all there that people do eat out or they, they order takeout, so they take food home. Um, that's part of the culture. So that, that's kind of similar. Um, I suppose one of the... I mean, the, the difference in taste is, is massive. I mean, the cuisines are, are very, very different. Um, <clears throat> I guess one of the, the key things is, is in, in Vietnam, everything is very fresh. And uh, you have an abundance of herbs, especially in the south. You're always eating herbs with with dishes. Some dishes even have up to ten different herbs with with uh, that come with the dish. In South Korea, most things uh, you don't have uh, so many fresh vegetables or or herbs. Things uh, the food is fermented uh, generally. Um, the, the food is also very spicy. In Vietnam, food is not really spicy. You can have red chili and, and different things to, to heat heat up a particular dish if you want to. But generally, the food is not, does not come to you hot and spicy. That's up to you if you want to change it. Whereas in Korea, um, especially in the southwest of Korea, um, things are quite quite a lot spicier. Um, although, you know, when I went back to, to research this book, I hadn't really been to Korea for about 20 years. And... Wow. Um, I was surprised to find, you know, because I, I toured the whole country to do, to, to study all the regional cuisines. And, you know, there are certain parts of Korea, Jeju Island uh, in particular, where there's, there's no spice. It's not spicy at all, which really shocked me because I think the, the idea of most people have about Korean food is that it's very, 
very in your face. It's very hot, uh, full of garlic. But actually, on Jeju Island, um, it's it, there's no there's no red pepper at all. So that that was a surprise to me. Um, and I think you know that's maybe one of the big motivations for me to to go to Korea and write this book was that um, people outside Korea, even inside Korea, don't really know how regional the food is in Korea. And, and me, you know, it's a whole learning experience as well for me, even though I'd lived there before. Uh, I learned a hell of a lot when I um, when I went back to Korea to, to research that book. So, yeah, the main differences, I guess, would be the freshness of everything in, in Vietnam and the fermentation in South Korea and then the spice in Korea and, and the lack of spice in Vietnam. And then in in Southeast Asia, at least, because that's where I've been, um, Korea exports a lot of its fast food culture and its coffee chains and things like that. And even in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, in the last couple of years, we have a couple of um, Korean coffee shops. Do they also have like American and, and, and Western chains in Korea? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, well, McDonald's is is everywhere. I think the oh, I read some statistic about McDonald's. There's, anyway, there's a lot of McDonald's in Korea. There's Starbucks. Um, there's possibly KFC. I'm sure there's KFC. I can't remember, but there's um, a, a huge influence in um, of, of American fast food in um, in South Korea, and it's very very popular, especially with the young. Um, that that was been a big change. You know, I mean, when I lived there. In South Korea, in what '96 or so, uh, the I think there was a one or two McDonald's in Seoul, but that was about it. I, certainly, where I lived, I lived out in the sticks in the southwest in a small city called Iksan, and there were no McDonald's there. There were kind of um, um, Koreans, uh, Korea, a Korean version of um, McDonald's, which they they still exist, but there was no sort of American fast food chains. That that's changed a lot now. So. I think basically in any reasonably big town, you'll you'll find a McDonald's and a Starbucks and whatever else um, without without too much bother. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting because it, you kind of warn against that in the end of eating Vietnam about how, mm-hmm. as the at least for for Saigon, as it becomes more Western and more chains come in and street food is moved off the streets and into restaurants that it's kind of eroding the traditional culture. And the friends that I have there, they'll, it is popular to eat at, you know, Western chains and they'll tell me things like, I love pizza. But then when I say, hey, let's go out to eat and you pick, it's always like their favorite, you know, grandma run food stall. So there's sort of like this nostalgia for like the, the family's home cooking butting up against the popularity of the mm. west is it is it kind of like that too in korea um yeah that's a good point um is it like that in korea i i i think i probably came away from korea a bit more concerned about the traditional food than maybe I did from Vietnam because oh, I wow. I got the feeling in, Viet, in in Vietnam that people were regardless of um, Western fast foods and being popular with with young Vietnamese that there still was that um, connection to taste from from when they were younger. Um, however, in South Korea, I, I mean I, I talked to a lot of people about this, um, young and old. 
people in, involved with the food industry and, and regular people, experts as well. And generally, and also the statistics back this up, that the younger people prefer um, Western food or sort of fast food than they would do to Korean food. So you even find um, a fashion which... You, Korea changes so quickly, so I say it's a fashion. <laughs> it might not be a fashion anymore, but um, especially among younger women of uh, of not liking kimchi, the traditional fermented um, oh, yeah. cabbage dish, which you know, would come with with every meal you eat in Korea. You know, there's kind of this. Is it a fad? I, I'm not really sure, but um, kimchi consumption is is going down, which is um, among the young, uh, which is almost uh, unheard of. I mean, to, if somebody had told me that 20 years ago, I, I would have said that's impossible. I mean, Koreans are so connected to kimchi and their, their food that this this would not be possible. So that kind of shocked me that um, that there was this change um, with younger people. And I, I met people um, in their, when I say younger, I'm talking about teenagers, but I met people in their, let's say, mid to late 20s um, who, who didn't eat kimchi, which... Uh, <laughs> what's your problem this is really strange <laughs> so uh yeah that that shocked me and um, but it's also fascinating because you know my, my book um the new one eating career is it really looks at you know kind of where korea was 20 years ago when i lived there where it is now and where it might be going in the future because it's it's a country that changes so quickly on every single level from from food to, to culture to jobs, gender, all sorts of different things. So it's fascinating to, to visit and observe all of that. But um, where it actually leads to in another 20 years, well, I, you know, I really don't know. It's, um, it's, it's already changed since I wrote my book, which you know, only comes out next, next month, but it's probably already out of date. You know, that, you know that's, I'm glad you went in that direction because I was going to ask you, one of the things that, like I'm a, I'm a big Bourdain fanboy and one of the big things that I pick up from his show is how intricately uh, food is tied to the politics and the history of the place that it comes from. I mean, just in the most simplest form, you know, the baguette being used in Vietnamese culture comes from the fact that there was French occupation there. And so, I mean, you've mm-hmm. essentially touched on it, but I was going to ask if if you're able to pick up on that in Korean culture, because Korea for so long was, you know, like metaphorically and literally a cultural bridge between mainland China and Japan. So I'm wondering if if those influences are obvious in the food culture there. Chinese and Japanese influences in, in Korean food. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are. I mean, um, it, it's it's complicated because you know they, they call um, what's the, what's the thing they they call Korea? Korea's a shrimp caught between two whales. The two whales <laughs> being China and Japan. Um, so yeah, it's sandwiched there, and um, you get a lot of influences from both countries uh, historically. Um, when Korea was was one country, not North and South Korea. Uh, China influenced the North uh, far more than the South. So 
Um, I met people in South Korea who actually, you know, came from North Korea originally, and they would say that they knew um, a particular dish. Let me remember <clears throat> mandu, which is kind of a, like a wonton, uh, a wonton dish, uh, which originally came through from China, ended up in Pyongyang and in North Korea, but in the southwest of Korea, it, it didn't arrive there until after the war. So you, you're talking, you know, as recently as the 1960s, that something as simple as a wonton arrived in, in southwest Korea, which is quite amazing, really. Um, with the Japanese side, you, you do have um, uh, sashimi, which is uh, very popular, and Japanese food is quite popular. Uh, however, the sashimi in South Korea is quite different. Um, they tend to prefer um, different kinds of fish for their sashimi, so a mullet might be quite popular. Um, but the difference is that the, the sashimi can be a little bit chewy compared to what you might get in Japan. Oh, wow. I've never been to Japan, so it's not really fair to comment. But, but this is what Japanese Koreans that I met in Korea told me, that you know, the taste in Korea is more inclined towards this kind of chewier sashimi um, style. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I think, you know, Koreans, they, they, take, they take influences from these places. And then they Koreanize them. They do it. They do it their own way. Um, so you know, it's 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 great again to to observe this uh, how how they create things and and also um, for me, you know, how things have changed in in the last twenty years. You know, what I what I thought was was very very Korean uh, twenty years ago is you know not so Korean today uh, in in many cases. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, there's obviously influences between the two, uh, with, with the two Chinese and, and Japanese influences. But but Korean food is, I think, is is very distinctively Korean, shall we say? One of the things that I loved about your writing is that it is so informed. And on your blog, you do a cool like uh, you do a really good job of of sharing some of the books that you're reading and you read a lot about the places you go to. So I'm wondering how you kind of vet that information that you're taking in, if that makes sense. Do you, do you just pick a country and pick books or like, how are you picking out the information that you read about a place so that you are accurately informed? Um, I mean, well, in the, the two cases you're talking about, Vietnam and Korea, I mean, I, I lived in those places. So, you know, just living there informs you. Um, and also, you know, you meet people, you recommend things to each other, um, you build up your own contacts, and um, that's, that's kind of the way it works. Um, however, going back to Korea was, you know, it had been a long break for me um, since I'd been in Korea. I'd obviously still been interested in Korean food, still eat it, still cook it myself. Um, so there was still that connection there. But uh, I spent a good, I'd say, four or five months probably researching uh, all the different provinces in Korea, where I wanted to go, who I wanted to meet, etc. Um, and specifically regarding books, I contacted, I think, three different people who I knew know a lot about Korean literature, Korean history, uh, have written books about Korea. And they recommended me um, basically a reading list, you know, uh, or certain authors to go and look at. And um, so that's what I did. Um, a friend of mine has written two, two history books on Korea. Um, I knew him 20 odd years ago. He's still living there now, still living in Seoul. Um, and uh, there's a professor of literature in 
in uh, Seoul who who I contacted and he came back with some really, really good recommendations, uh, which I read before I went and I read some books while I was there as well. And uh, actually reading novels and um, <clears throat> some short stories really informed uh, this book because it, it's a different kind of eye into culture if you go through fiction rather than purely fact-based journalistic books and articles, then I find, especially now because there's such a profusion of um, Korean literature, you know, um, some of the authors becoming more more and more famous in the West as well, which is great to see. And um, reading their books really helped me um, have an eye into how they they see their own culture. Yeah. So uh, the actual filters, I guess, (laughs) contacts and and research, that's it. Yeah. I love that you share those uh, titles that you're reading when you're in a place. And I also really love that you seem to be really interested and involved in the process of writing. I think that even if somebody's not interested in, in food culture or history, that there's a lot of value in your blog in just learning how to write. And part of that is you seem to be influenced by uh, music and um, other other art forms and other mediums, even down to the influences for your book cover. So I was wondering if you mm. could briefly discuss those mediums or genres or artists that were an inspiration to you as you were writing this book. The career book, yeah? Yeah. Um, oh, gosh. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I took a really different approach to this career book. Um, what, what I wanted to do was um, what I what I aimed to do. I don't know if I succeeded. Was to kind of go back to the the travel of books <clears throat> I would read when I was stuck in that small town in in England um, in the, in the early nineties and, and desperate to get out. <clears throat> I was reading books, travel books, a lot of travel books to kind of escape. In a way, you're escaping through somebody else's experiences. So I'd read um, Paul through. Um, he was. You know, I, w- I probably wouldn't enjoy Paul through anymore, but at the time, <laughs> I actually really enjoyed him like, um, because his his descriptions are so so good that they really took you on his journey. You know, on the on the the train across um, through to uh, to Russia. Um, so yeah, I I think I was I was kind of looking to to write an old style travelogue in a way. But with the focus being on food, on culture, on um, development of a society and all those different things. But the food being the main thread through the, the whole book. Um, as for other, other things related to, to art and, and music, I, I listen to, I don't listen to any music when I'm, when I was in the field. I don't think I listen to anything at all. Um, but when I'm working, I listen to a lot of music, but it's not music with, with any voices, any singing, any words in it, normally quite um, uh, ambient music often. So it could be a lot of Brian Eno I listen to, uh, Philip Glass, um, Asex Twin sometimes, which can be a little bit harsh, so I don't always listen to that. Um, some sitar music, I listen to a lot of that. Um, but this is kind of work that I, I mean, music I don't really have to concentrate on. I think that's the definition of ambient music from Brian Eno was, you know, it's music that's, it's there, but you don't have to think about it. It's just kind of, it flows through you if you're in a way. So, but I find that very 
good to work to. And apparently a lot of other authors think the same. I've read recently um, Ian Rankin, the famous crime writer, he, he does the same thing. I wasn't surprised to read it, but it's kind of good to see that other people have the same ideas as, as you. As for writing, um, I, yeah, I'm very interested in the writing process because, you know, when I was asked to write the first book, it seemed like such a big mountain to climb. How could I possibly write a book? You know, I'm just an ordinary guy. How could I do that? So it was a challenge, and I, I wondered if I'd be able to do it. So I had to study, in a way, the, the process of writing, how to write books, and, and get some ideas of how to go about it. So I, I read a huge amount um, and listened to a lot of podcasts uh, from writers who who done it before me and to kind of get an idea of how they handled it um so so yeah a lot of research on that side and then on a small smaller side the william burris is, is cut ups um the method of um you know chopping up different stories and things like that i found really valuable to to find descriptions you wouldn't otherwise think of or think about yourself um they you know, it's not it's not a case of like cutting up, you know, paragraphs of pages and coming up with whole sentences and all of that. It doesn't work like that for me at all. You might just get a single word, two or three words together, and and that kind of maybe gets you out of a little bit of a hole for a description you're looking for, something like that. I hadn't used that at all for the Vietnam book, but for the Korea book, I thought I'd give it a go, and it it, it was really good fun. It really adds a little bit of energy to the to the book as well, I think. Um, and it certainly energizes the writing process. So that's, that, I think that's where the real value comes in, actually, of using the Burroughs cut-up method. It's just a way of seeing things differently, um, that you seeing things that you, you can't see without doing something like that. You know? um, so, yeah, I think that those are the main, main influences that you, you're referring to there. Yeah. Um, do, do you remember the name of any of those podcasts off the top of your head? Gosh, um, I think the one I listened to a lot was there's a BBC podcast about writers. I can't remember the name of it now, but it's basically where you get a there's a lot of BBC book pod, podcasts, and they're, they're generally all very good. But there was one particular one uh, where you, you get a writer who's written a particularly famous book, and um, he's interviewed, he or she is interviewed by uh, guests in an audience and people from around the world about how they wrote that book. So you, you go into the process of, um, you know, creating a character or whatever. I mean, it's not really relevant to non-fiction generally. It's mostly fiction, but the process was very interesting. So I think I listened to, like, I don't know, 80 different podcasts from the BBC about that. Um, that those those podcasts are the ones that stick in my mind the most. But I listen to a lot of different books, podcasts, and I think they all influenced me. Yeah. Um, in regards to music, I I listened recently to Henry Rollins on Ari Shafir's podcast, who's a a comedian here in the states, and mm-hmm. Henry Rollins, who obviously. Um, fronted black flag but he the the podcast was about was mostly about his travels throughout the world and one of the things i really Mm -hmm. liked about it was he talked about how from saudi arabia to japan every time he's in a new city he goes to record stores and buys records and Mm -hmm. i did see on your um on the noodle pie blog that you are also someone that collects records so i'm wondering if 
from from Vietnam to Korea to I think you, you spent time in France and now in Senegal. Is that something you do? Do you visit record stores in those countries? Oh, I would have done years ago, um, but when I you know when I moved abroad in '95 or whatever, um, I I wouldn't say I stopped buying records, but it's something that's difficult to carry around with you right. around the world. So on a practical basis, um, I do have a record collection, not, not a huge one, but I have a record collection, but it's not with me okay. uh, where I live at the moment. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, so in me, everything's changed, you know, with, with uh, MP3s and, and before that CDs and, and what have you. So, and also living in Asia, getting music, getting films, <clears throat> anything like that was very, very easy because it's, it's all counterfeit right. in Vietnam in a way, not, not so much in Korea. Um, in, in Korea, actually, when I first lived there, um, there wasn't a lot to do in the way of entertainment. I mean, very, very little where I lived. And so actually buying music was something I did basically every week. So, you know, you, you weren't exactly... Um, supplied with a great source of Western music uh, where I lived. So I did listen, uh, buy a lot of um, Korean music. Um, so that, that I guess that kind of informed me when I lived there. That changed slightly. I mean, I, I think a lot of Korean music's pretty good, uh, pop music. Not not the K-pop stuff, but I, I preferred some of um, some of the other kinds of bands. One of the bands I liked years ago was called Juju Club. I think they're still going. Um, but the, the music scene, like everything else in Korea, has completely changed. I mean, now you've got you know, quite a, a raging uh, punk scene in, in Seoul around Hongdae, I believe. You've got some weird electronic stuff going on. You've got some groups. Of, there's a group, I can't remember the name of them now. I mention them in the book, but they're, they're, um, they're taking tr- traditional Korean instruments and, and making very kind of non-traditional music which is which is a really interesting change so i i think actually you know you, you've hit on something that's quite quite um uh, prescient in career at the moment is that if you if you do look at the changes in music that are happening there i think you've got a pretty good eye into how how radically the culture it has changed and is changing because the music that exists there now um simply, you know, they'd never even heard of this stuff 20 years ago. So, you know, that, that's, that was quite a, a revelation as well. Cool. Um, and if, if anybody's not familiar with K-pop, uh, Noisy through Vice just did uh, an episode on K-pop, and it, it's it's really, really interesting. Sorry. Sure, yeah. I could, uh, so Noisy is one of the channels through Vice, and oh, yes. they yeah. just did a really interesting episode about K-pop, so... I recommend people check that out. Um, Good, I'll go, I'll, go and, I'll go and watch that myself, yeah. So, Graham, how do you then end up in Senegal? Um, simply because my wife uh, was offered a promotion here with her work, and so we decided to, to move here. Before that, we were living in Rwanda. Uh, before that, France. Before that, um, Vietnam. So, <clears throat> at the moment... We've moved with her job. Um, previously, we've moved with mine. Um, so, yeah, it's basically whoever gets the most interesting or um, good opportunity where we can both fit in, you know, with our our work, and then we follow that. And, and for the moment, it's it's with my wife's job. Yeah. So, what is food culture like there? Because I, if if my history is correct, I believe Senegal was also colonized by France. Is that true? 
Yes, it was. Yes, there's quite a big French influence. Um, that is quite. It's a very cosmopolitan place, really, for for Africa, especially West Africa. It's very. I'd say it's a very um, tolerant place. Um, quite open-minded. Uh, it's predominantly Muslim, but very, very accepting of other other religions uh, and secular cultures. Um, the, the food culture is, as West Africa goes, it, it's reputed to be one of the best. Um, they they do have a, a French influence, but there's also, quite interestingly, there's, a, there's quite a bit of, of Vietnamese influence, bizarrely, because um, a lot of Vietnamese um, came over here uh, after the French in Vietnam, and then I'm not sure if many came over after the, the American War in Vietnam. Um, but you do have like quite a number of um, little stalls selling um, Vietnamese names. You know the spring rolls. Oh wow! Uh, they're, they're, they're they're pretty common, and you do see Vietnamese or Asian faces uh, selling behind the stalls, selling these things. And um, so there was quite a bit of intermarriage between Vietnamese and Senegalese going back, going way back. In fact, there was an article recently on, uh, where did I see it? I think, was it Roads and Kingdoms or somewhere? I, I saw a very good article about the whole history of this and how it goes back to like one guy and one um, one couple, the Senegalese and the Vietnamese, who, who came back and sort of brought the culture back. But what's quite interesting is if you sometimes you talk to Senegalese friends and and they, it's so embedded in the culture, they, they often think that nem or spring rolls are, are Senegalese food, whereas the history, you know, goes all the way back to, to Vietnam, to China. Um, so you get, you get quite a mix of that. It's quite interesting. And, um, but the, there's about three or four sort of key dishes that everybody knows in, in Senegal and everybody can cook. So puleyasa is a very, is probably my favorite one, which is a, uh, chicken, which is, you know, quite well cooked, but with a, a really tasty mustardy vinegary onion kind of sauce. Um, and tibudien, which is a, a big fish and rice and sweet potato dish, which is, is quite heavy, but it's quite delicious as well. And then you've got masi, which is another very common dish. So there's, I'd say there's, you know, there's some sort of key things. Also, there's some very, very hot um, chili, chili peppers here. That are really, really hot stuff. Um, so yeah, it's quite a variety. You know, uh, I'd, I'd say the food's pretty good in Senegal. So does Senegal or Rwanda get a book? What's next for you? Um, I don't think so. No. Um, Rwanda was very different. I mean, on a food level, Rwanda was not um, not particularly interesting. I mean, I, I enjoyed it there, um, but the variety is limited, shall we say. We used to grow a lot of our own food in, in Rwanda because it's so green and so lush. You can We had a, a garden and we could grow all of, all of Vietnamese herbs and um, herbs and whatnot that we needed. We, we grew ourselves. Um, but food-wise, no, I don't think it... it particularly inspiring um senegal i i enjoy it um on the food front more than i did in rwanda but it's still not not quite the same as um as uh, korea or or vietnam or other parts of asia you know there's i think the food culture in southeast asia and korea japan um is has so much energy about it and and everybody has an opinion there everybody knows a lot about food generally 
Um, so you can't help but kind of be sucked into this 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 world. And um, I, I kind of miss that buzz a bit because it's not quite the same here and certainly in Rwanda. I mean, the, the food culture was was not not really evident at all. So. Yeah, I think I'd have to to be inspired to write a, another book about food. I think I'd have to be um, really energized by where where I am. I mean, the only other book, there's only two other books I'm thinking about writing about food. One, I've got a proposal I've written is about Britain, which is obviously far from far from Southeast Asia oh, yeah, as well. Wow. But I, I'm quite energized by by what happens in Britain that people don't really know about. Um, but yeah, we'll see. We'll see if that comes off. There's uh, one last thing I, for, I that slipped my mind to mention. You really expertly hooked readers into the Eating Vietnam book by uh, early on in the book talking about, uh, I don't know if it was your first meal or one of your first meals, and it turned out to be a pig uterus. Um, oh, yeah. So I think... You know, there's like uh, the Bizarre food show, and I know that whenever I go somewhere, people are, are like most interested in kind of living vicariously through you in terms of like with quotes around this, like adventurous eating, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything in Korea that might seem strange to people who are not from Korea that you might have eaten. Um. Yeah, there are, there are many things. Um, I mean, I, to be honest, I, I'm I'm not really in, inspired or interested in this kind of um, you know bizarre eating, adventurous right. eating. I mean, yeah, I I prefer to be guided by people there, people I know, people I meet, and just you know if it's good, okay, let's try it. I don't mind what it is, but uh, I probably draw. I would draw the line at dog. I've never eaten dog, um, but uh, yeah, I, I I'm guided by people there you know and on their trusting in their taste buds generally um however you know there are there are certain things in korea which um which really do do push the limits sometimes uh, there's one particular dish which which i wrote about in the book um uh, which is in the far southwest of korea in a place called mokpo uh, which is famous for um a dish called hongo which is um uh, it's a kind of a skate, uh, which is a big flatfish, I'm sure you know. Um, but this particular, the way they, there's a bit of a history to it, but the way they, they cook it, or don't really cook it really, is that the, 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 the skate ferments in its own urine. Whoa. So it's like a fermented, because it excretes, it doesn't have a, um, you know, it doesn't pee as such, it excretes urine from its um, skin. So if you just kind of leave this fish alone for however long, um, it will um, basically uh, ferment itself in its own urine that comes out. So when I don't know how long it takes to 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 make it so that it's it's uh, the prime um, <coughs> prime uh, what's, what's the word prime point of of, of eating. Um, but you know if you go to a restaurant that serves this stuff, the stench is is pretty strong. Um, it's it's like ammonia or going into a, a pretty dirty urine, gentleman's urinal, I should say. Um, wow. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's quite quite unbelievable actually, and the taste. I mean, it's it's. It, I, I think I said in the book, it's actually the only thing I've ever eaten that I will, I know I will never eat again. But if you talk to Koreans. Especially from Mokpo, they all love this stuff. I mean, it's it's absolutely their favourite food. If they could 
choose to eat anything, they would choose to eat this particular dish. And if you have a wedding, this this dish you have to have the best possible hongol that you can that you can get. And if you don't have it, it's really disrespectful of the wedding. And wow. um, so I heard all sorts of stories about this when I was down there. Um, but the taste of it, it's it's really. It's like I say, it's like licking a, a, a you know one of those blue blocks they put in a gentleman's urinal. <laughs> yeah. It's like it's, it's really that foul. Oh, it's, God. it's terrible. But people, some people they get addicted to it. You know, I, one of my oldest friends in Korea. I've you know I've known her for over twenty years. I used to work with her. She's a grandmother now, and I talked to her about it when I was back, and she said, you know, you get a taste for it. You, you get addicted to it. It took me time. To, to get into it, but now um, it's it's one of my favourite foods. You told me, so yeah, maybe maybe I just didn't try enough of it, but uh, I, I won't be trying it again. Wow, I mean that's interesting. I mean the the fermentation part of that alone sounds uh, really wild, but I know that even if you yeah yeah if you take a charter boat here out of New York, you can catch. I mean you're going after uh, I believe flounder usually, but when you catch a skate, like you never keep it. Um, so it's interesting oh, really? to, to even hear. Yeah, I've seen like skate wing before in the store, but mm-hmm. um, I've no, never no, had that d- delicious skate is a really nice fish. Oh, I really? like it a lot, but this this is um, this is not you know not a fresh skate straight off the boat. This right. has been sitting in its own toilet for <laughs> how many days, weeks, months. Um, yeah, it's it's not a pleasant dish at all. Wow. All right, so what I'm going to do is. Uh, at this point, in people listening to this, you've heard my intro already, but um, Eating Vietnam is clearly available, so I'm going to do a bit of like a social media contest to give someone a copy of that book. Eating Korea mm-hmm. is on pre-order. You can order it through Amazon. Um, that comes out here, I believe, March 15th. Once that is out, I will also do some kind of social media competition to to give a copy of that away. How can people find you, Graham, um, on social media, or if they can contact you, how can they contact you? Um, probably best uh, on, on Twitter, Noodle Pie on Twitter, Noodle Pie on Instagram. I don't really use anything else on social media, so that's, that's the best way, yeah. Okay, great. Um, again, Graham, thank you so much for joining us today. I was uh, super, super excited to have you on. No worries. Thanks very much, Tim. All right, that's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Graham. Thank you, as always, to Brian Goldsman for getting my frantic calls late at night when my technology is not working right. Don't forget, if you are interested in trying to get a copy of Eating Vietnam or, or Eating Korea to screenshot your sharing of the episode and to send that to the voyages of Tim Vetter at gmail.com. All right, I'll follow up with an episode real soon, I promise. Catch you next time.